great to be able to open God's Word with you today. Uh, I've got this up on my uh, study wall, uh, and it's uh, my favourite Bible verse. Uh, It's from Philippians, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, But the story behind it is uh, my sister-in-law was part of a a family's congregation that I was leading uh, in Melbourne, Uh, and she she was a bit cheeky. She called me up and said, oh, Kieran, I'm putting a calendar together for the whole church, uh, and I'm asking everyone their favourite verse. Can you can you tell me your favourite verse? So I told her and gave it to her and she, uh, I forgot about it really and then a few weeks later it was our farewell and she came out with this uh, and it turns out she wasn't making a calendar at all, she was just coming up with the guys to get my favourite verse so that she could um, put it to art and I could take with me to Perth and now have up uh, on uh, the, the wall of my study. Uh, It's Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where Paul says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Uh, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now there's a lot of verses in the Bible to choose from, but but that's my favourite. Why is it my favourite? Because so often I look back on my life and I go, Gee, have I made any progress? in the last year, in this sin that I keep struggling with, in the last five years, in the last 10 years, in the last 20 years? Have I made any progress uh, in being conformed into the image of my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ? And I think, what's the point? This isn't going to happen. And then I think of Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident. What does being confident feel like? Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Which means even if I do make zero progress in this life, which would be quite bleak, even if I make zero progress, he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Hallelujah. That's good news. Uh, And so uh, the question we're really asking today is, Well, Paul writes to the Philippians that he began a good work in them. And we're asking today, well, how did that work begin? How did that work begin? And and that work began in the people in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I wonder if you noticed it in the second verse, verse 12, uh, that they landed in Philippi. And, and, And so... This is the historical context. It's helpful. Sometimes we, we think that the Bible kind of just fell out of the sky like some revelation or it floats in the ether. But, but actually it has a historical, geographical, economic, political, lingual context. Uh, and, and, and we find that in Acts 16. So it's helpful for us before we look at the letter to the Philippians to actually set ourselves in the historical, geographical, social, political, economic context. And that's what we see in verse 16. And so in, in chapter 16, sorry. Uh, and so Paul arrived in Philippi on his second missionary journey. And this is a map of all of Paul's missionary journeys. And so it has a geographical context. This is the Mediterranean. Uh, and, and the purple line, which you won't see, it's purple, this is his second missionary journey. And if you notice in verse 11, I hope you have it in front of you, it says, from Troas we sailed to Samothrace, that's an island there, I'm sorry you struggled to see it, and then Neapolis, which was a coastal city in the region of Macedonia, which again it says in Acts 16, it has a geographical context, 
and then 10 miles inland from Neapolis was Philippi. And so that's what you see in verses 11 and 12. And uh, even better is that um, archaeologists have been able to dig the site of Philippi. And so this is the um, context of Philippi. This is a map of the region, a very famous Roman road that you can still walk today, the Via Ignatia. And this would have been the road that they walked to from Neapolis through Philippi. Uh, and uh, it says that, uh, Paul said, it, it, it says in Acts verse 12 that it was a Roman colony uh, and a leading city. So it was, it, was the big, it was the leading city of Macedonia. So this is Macedonia, and Philippi was the Cottesloe of Macedonia. Uh, and that has an impact on you, doesn't it, when you, when you live in a place like Cottesloe? You, you have, that has certain connotations. Pride could be a thing about being able to live uh, in a leading city. Uh, and, so, and that comes up in Philippians. But it's even, it gets even more interesting. In verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate. See the gate? There's the town walls. We went outside the gate by the river. Can anyone see a river? Verse 13, we went outside the gate by the river. So they went along the Via Ignatia outside this gate uh, to the river. Uh, and, and, and so it's helpful to know that, that, that this has a context, doesn't it? Uh, and, and here's the river. This is the river Gangites today. Uh, this is the river outside the city gate where they met, uh, a place of prayer where they met with Lydia. Uh, so that's the, some of the geographical context. We could say more, but uh, it gets more interesting when we think about uh, the historical context because, you know, this is the first time that the gospel reached Europe. The first time that the gospel reached the, 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 the place of Europe, the continent of Europe. Obviously, it wasn't that continent then, but it is today. Um, so right here, uh, the first time it reached Europe. Uh, and and this, is, this is incredible. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, uh, reflects uh, on, on the magnitude of this. Uh, he says, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Europe became the first Christian continent and was until fairly recently the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world, we can see what an epoch-making development this was. It was from Europe that in due course the gospel fanned out to the great continents of Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America and Oceania and so reached the ends of the earth. What an epoch-making moment this is. Remember how Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a tiny little mustard seed? And then it grows into the hugest of all trees? Well, we're witnessing the mustard seed in Acts 16, where the gospel reaches Lydia, and all of Europe, and the ends of the world. Jesus knew what he was talking about. So that's the historical context the, the moment where the gospel reached Europe. How about some um, social context for what we're seeing uh, in the story? Um, it's not uncommon for the, uh, uh, the question to be asked, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Uh, this is a book. Um, uh, it was Book of the Year, Christian Book of the Year last year. If you, if you like wrestling with tough questions... Uh, for Christianity, then I couldn't um, recommend this book highly enough. Uh, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Um, 
yeah, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and and it's uh, question two, she asked the question, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? And in the introduction she says, for many the idea that Christianity is a white Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism stands as a major ethical barrier to considering Christ. We celebrate diversity and lament the ways religion has been used by Westerners to destroy indigenous cultures. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar at all? Well, what do we see in Acts 16? We see Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Purple was the colour of loyalties. She was, she was a successful businesswoman. All right? So the gospel apparently can reach people like that. In, in, in Philippi and in Cottesloe. Apparently the gospel can reach people who are at the top of their game and the top of the pecking order. And apparently it can also reach a slave girl who is the um, mud underneath your foot uh, in that world. In a much more hierarchical and stratified society than today where the top would only hang out with the top and wouldn't go anywhere near the bottom and the bottom would only hang out with the bottom and wouldn't go anywhere near the top. Apparently the gospel has power to reach, and women, no less, in a patriarchal society, a a, a successful businesswoman and a scum-of-the-earth slave girl, and then in between, what you might term in um, anachronistic terms, the middle class, jailer, uh, in, in the story as well. So talk about cultural diversity. There's not a more diverse Uh, community in the world Uh, and there's not a more diverse uh, gospel uh, in the world that all that can be reached and no less come together as family look at verse 40 it says uh, they went to Lydia's home so now the church is meeting in Lydia's home and by the way she's using her resources she has a house she's putting that now her resources as a rich woman at the disposal of the church and the gospel. And when they'd seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters, there they departed together. So the rich businesswoman and the slave girl scum are now together as equals, as family. Uh, talk about diversity. What, what a shame that people have the idea uh, that we'd be an imperialist uh, community. There's truth to it, unfortunately, but it's not what we see in Acts chapter 16. So having looked at some of the context, uh, the question really I think we uh, address in this uh, passage is how does the gospel grow? We we see the gospel grow and spread like a wildfire across Europe and then across the whole uh, rest of the world um, in this moment where the gospel reached Philippi. And also, how do you explain this incredible diversity where people from different cultural, social, geographical, economic and religious backgrounds uh, in a highly stratified, uh, stratified, status-conscious, hierarchical, honour-shame culture could possibly break those barriers down and come together as family and be brothers and sisters in Christ? How does that happen? How does the gospel grow? And I think it happens in two ways that we see that I want to point out. In the passage. Firstly, the gospel grows through laborers who spread the gospel. It grows through laborers who spread or speak the gospel. Um, Some of you have been coming to James Duff's training on Wednesday night. It has been absolutely stellar. Ten bucks, can you believe it? Uh, and, uh, and, And he's given us this tool called the Four Fields. 
uh, and it's based on a parable that Jesus told in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. Uh, and, and it's incredibly helpful. The story that Jesus told is this. Um, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And this is the tool that um, uh, James Duff has been teaching us based on this passage about how the gospel grows. Uh, And so you've got someone, firstly, who finds an empty field with nothing in it. Then they plant seeds in the field. Finally, the seeds take sprout and grow. And then at at the end, they're harvested because there's been a harvest. Uh, And uh, I want to show you in the passage um, how we see this happening in Acts chapter 16 because it's really exciting and interesting and it answers the question, how does the gospel spread like wildfire and how does it create a new family of believers? So in verses 11 to 14, I noticed seven different verbs, active verbs that the apostles Paul, Silas and Luke um, were actively looking for a field, an empty field. So look with me, verse 11, we set sail. Verse 12, we remained. Verse 13, we went outside, we supposed, we sat down and spoke. Verse 14b, the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Can you see that they're looking for a field, an empty field where they can find a harvest? The tool that Duffy has given us to think about this and finding our own field is simply a prayer map where you think, who are the people in my life, in the field that I'm in, who are far from God, putting them on a prayer map, naming them out and praying praying for them, praying for them regularly. So now you're looking for a field, an empty field. Uh, And it's been fantastic. Um, He's even um, encouraged us to do what he does, which is set his alarm for 10.02 because of um, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, which says, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And at 10.02 every day to be reminded to pray for those people who are far from God in the field that you're in. And I was thinking, that is so good because what my evangelism lecturer taught us was so true. Evangelism is usually the first thing to fall off the back of the truck in our lives and in the church. It's normally the first thing that we forget about and neglect to do. So what a powerful thing to set an alarm at 10.02 I've started to do so that front and centre, it doesn't fall off the back of the truck. There's a reminder and there's the alarm goes off and, and we pray. And we pray for those people that they would come to hear the good news and put their trust in Jesus, even like the people in this story did. So we see them finding a field and then we see them sowing in the next quarter quadrant a seed, sharing the gospel. Look at verse 14b. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. What was said by Paul? Well, that's a bit vague. What did he say? Was he talking about the weather? Well, I think we get a clue in verse 17. The the slave girl cries out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim, they're speaking to you, a way of salvation. Okay, well, that's clear. So now he's talking about a way of salvation. Still a bit vague, though, like what's the way of salvation? 
Okay, well, let's look at verse 30. Then the jailer brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, so they spoke, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Ah, so that's what they spoke. They spoke the gospel, the message of believing on the Lord Jesus in his life, death and resurrection for sin. And do you notice here that it's believe and receive, not achieve and achieve. I, I love it. that The jailers, what must I do to be saved? Achieve and achieve. And they're like, no, believe and receive. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Friends, this is why it's so important that the go- we're clear that the gospel is a message. It's a word. It's news about something that is done. It's already done what Jesus did, his life, death and resurrection. It's a message about something that's done, that's already done. That's why it's not achieve and achieve. The message is no, believe and receive the good news of what has been done for you. And so, have you got the gospel message clear in your head? Are you clear in your head that it's something that's already, it's a message about something Jesus has already achieved. Paul prays in Colossians 4 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, because it's the message of salvation, the power for salvation. Have you got it clear in your head? And dear friends, is this the gospel that we're sharing with our young people? Or is it just some kind of works-based, be a good person, try to do better message. It's the power for salvation, but, but do we know what it is? And, and are we sharing it? Or, or, or is, is it just some version of achieve and achieve rather than believe and receive? Friends, if you don't, it's, that, that's a problem if you don't know it and, and don't know how to share it. Um, but I've got, I've got good news for you. That, not the good news, but good news. This Wednesday night at 7.30, James Duff will be training us in what the message is and how to share it. And I couldn't think of anything more important for us to have clear for ourselves, for the people who are far from God and for the next generation. Pray that we may proclaim it clearly as we should, Colossians 4. So come along this Wednesday, you're invited. It's not even 10 bucks, it's free for you. So come along. Now, before we get to the next field, there's a really important step. Verse 14b says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Do you see, this is, this is the, he who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Can you see it? It, It's the Lord that did the work. And so we have a role in sharing the gospel and making it clear as we should. That's our role. But God's role is that they listen eagerly and the Lord opens their heart to receive the message. Isn't that beautiful? So, So on the one hand, it keeps us from being overwhelmed as if it's all up to us and we have to do it and convince them and get them. No, God is the one that opens people's hearts. And on the other hand, it keeps us from being uh, lazy and not doing anything because we have a role in sharing the gospel. God could do it on his own. He, he could just go, Graham, zap, 
Christian. Phil, zap, Christian. But he, in his sovereignty and wisdom, has ordained to spread the gospel through us, to partner with us in sharing the gospel. And it's important for us to have that clear in our heads. And so it's so encouraging as well because it's not like I've decided and I'm going to follow and it's all on my shoulders uh, for Lydia. It's not like I've decided and I've got to keep deciding to follow. No, the Lord began the good work in you and he will carry it on to completion. We've got to keep God in the picture. So that's the third, second field. Well, that's the transition to the second field. God gives the growth. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. We have a role, God has a role. It's a partnership that we're in. Uh, and so uh, the, the third quadrant is, is discipling. You think about a new shoot. I saw we've got a tree out there and it's protected with, with a, uh, a little a kind of small tree. It's protected because new shoots are vulnerable, right? And they need tending. They need a gardener to take care of them. And so with new Christians, they need discipling. They need caring. Uh, and this is, this is our calling. This is, this is what we're called to. Uh, and, and so we see it uh, in, in Acts 16 as well. Um, in verse 32, uh, it says they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer. And we see it, I think, in verse 40 as well, where it says um, they come back, right? They don't just leave. They don't just go, okay, they're, they're Christians now, we'll just leave them. No, they came back and encouraged the brothers and sisters before they departed. And, and so... Uh, there's a discipleship process, right? And then we get to the final field of a church formation where now they're a body and they're a family and they need to start to learn to live like the family. Scholars say that um, this, this event happened, um, Philippian, the visit to Philippi in AD 50, and that the letter was written 10 or 12 years later in um, AD 60 to 62. Uh, and so 10 years have transpired and in a sense... Paul is pastoring in this four field when he's writing this letter that we're going to be looking at. They're figuring out how to be a family. They're having some issues 10, 12 years later. And so he's writing a letter back to them to, to encourage them and to grow them as a church. So in a sense, um, it's a bit artificial, but in a sense, Acts 16 is, is kind of the top two, although you can see actually see all of them. But the letter to the Philippians is more uh, around the bottom two quadrants where he's tending the shoots and growing the harvest. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next, uh, well, several weeks. Uh, So the gospel grows, point one, through laborers who speak the gospel. But here's the next idea that we see, and I want to show you in the rest of the passage. The gospel grows through laborers who live the gospel. Some people think that, that you can grow God's kingdom or grow the gospel in other ways, like seizing the reins of political power. That's a way that people think the gospel grows. Here's an article from um, CNN, 2016, January 26. Trump picks up endorsement of evangelical leader Jerry Falwell Jr. 
goes like this. Evangelical leader Jerry Falwell Jr. is endorsing Donald Trump for president. Quote, Trump is a successful executive and entrepreneur, a wonderful father and a man who I believe can lead our country to greatness again, Falwell said in a statement released by Trump's campaign. Trump said in the statement that Falwell's support means so much to me. He also tweeted, of course, his appreciation. Great honour, Reverend Jerry Falwell Jr. of Liberty University, one of the most respected religious leaders in our nation, has just endorsed me, he said. Um, the previous principal, Johnny Moore, spoke to CNN and he said, I do absolutely think Falwell and Liberty are responsible for the rapid increase in evangelical support for Trump. The Falwell and Liberty brand remain absolutely unmatched in influence in this country among conservative, politically active evangelicals. I know that warms the cockles of so many of your hearts uh, to hear that. Um, here's an article, um, uh, article from um, the Sydney Morning Herald from only two weeks ago, also about this same guy, Jerry Falwell, uh, who endorsed Trump. Um, it's by Julia Baird, um, and she wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's been astonishing to witness Falwell's instantaneous tumble from power as a cascade of allegations have emerged. Financial impropriety creepy behaviour towards female students and other details that are inappropriate for me to mention in church, um, allegations against Falwell. Uh, Then there's the fact that Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, I don't know if you remember that guy, um, was involved in helping suppress compromising photos of the Falwells with alleged hush money just before Falwell emerged to endorse Trump. You might not have got all that, but just think, absolutely scandalous. Some people think that the way that the gospel grows is by seizing the reins of political power. Now, we're all hearing that and going, never me, that's disgraceful. And yes, it is disgraceful. But actually, we all kind of think that things grow by by our own effort and by our own power. Like, you know, um, how am I going to grow as a Christian? Well, I'm going to need to try harder and apply more and, and get better. And, 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 you know, and the reason I'm up here and you're down there is because I've tried harder and done better. Um, and and, and that's, how, that's how it works, you know. And once you get to my level, then you'll get to get up here. Like, that's, that's how we think it works. And, and the way that the church is going to grow is I'm going to work harder, I'm going to be kinder, I'm going to preach better, and, and that's how the church is going to grow. That's not how the gospel grows. The gospel grows through laborers who live the gospel, and I want to show you how that works in Acts 16. The gospel grows through the J-curve. Uh, what's the J-curve? On the left, Jesus' J-curve is very simple. He, he went down, he died, uh, he was dead and buried, uh, but then by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, he was risen again. Uh, and, and, and we forget that this is the map that God has given us. We die, and by the power of the Spirit, we rise again. Not just once, every moment of every day. And I want to show you how it works in Acts 16. So it starts with amazing healing of a slave girl. Incredible display of power. It's not a healing, it's a deliverance. Amazing. So now we're up here. We're doing pretty well. But let's... 
it goes south pretty quickly. Verse 19, the workers are like, man, she was making a fortune for us. She was a fortune teller. Now we're not going to make any money. So verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So now do you see we're heading down the J curve. Uh, verse 20, 21, they make up some story about how they're Jews and blah, blah, blah. But actually, that's not why they're angry. They're angry because they've lost their living. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. We're going further down the J curve. Oh, dear. The magistrates had them stripped of their clothing, getting worse, ordered them to be beaten with rods, getting worse again. Verse 23, a severe flog, after a severe flogging, they threw them into prison, yikes, into the innermost cell, the high security dungeon, right in the middle, and finally fastened their, seat in the, their feet in the stocks. So where are we now in the J-curve? We have hit the bottom. Forces completely out of their control. You know, I found it so interesting. At the start of the story... There's all these verbs about what they've done. Um, they sailed, they spoke, they waited, they, all, all of these things, and they're not doing anything in the next, this section. It's all being done to them. Not a single thing. It's all being done to them. Forces completely out of their control are acting upon them, and they're totally powerless. Now, for Paul and Silas, it was an extremely violent Situation that probably none of us have faced. For me, it's a chronic illness. A force completely outside of my control, attacking me, seizing me, dragging me into the innermost cell, fastening my feet with stocks. What is it for you? What situation? What sin? Attacking you, seizing you, dragging you, fastening your feet with stocks. I don't know about you, but the way that I react in those situations far too often is that I try and escape into some kind of sinful pleasure. The way that I view those situations is I think there's no hope. I just need something to soothe the pain. This is a hopeless situation. But what do Paul and Silas do in the story? Thank you, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So often we look at our situation and all we can see is a tomb. But all God can see is a womb. You just think about Jesus. How powerless he was. Stripped, dragged, beaten, flogged, mocked, crown of thorns, a robe, nailed to the cross, laid down dead in a tomb. But all God could see was a womb pregnant with power and possibility. Friends, the disciples learned something profound on Easter Sunday morning. They discovered that when all we can see is a tomb, 
all God can see is a womb. That's why Paul and Silas were singing at the bottom of the J-curve and praying. They just can't wait for the resurrection power of Jesus to be displayed in them and through them. So they're praying and they're singing. They know the J-curve. It's not just a message that, to speak. It's a message to be lived. In other words, God is able to turn every one of your scars, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, otherwise your sin or whatever situation you're taking, he is able to take it and to pour out his spirit of redemption and power and resurrection in the same way that he did so with Jesus' dead body in the tomb. Do you believe it? He's a mighty God. So let's see the resurrection in this story, shall we? Verse 25. Firstly, we're heading up the J-curve. All the prisoners hear them singing hymns to God. The prisoners hear the name of Jesus and the praise of Jesus in prison because they're there. The gospel is spreading even in that dark place. Verse 26. There's an earthquake and the place is shaken and they all get out. A mighty display of God's power. When it says the place was shaken, it's the same thing as it says in Acts 4 when they prayed together. It says the whole place was shaken. And it's shaken here by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, 31. The jailer becomes a believer in God. Verse 32, 34. His entire household is saved. Can you see? Can you see? It's not just one, like one thing. We're like going up and up and up and up. And then, and then as, as, as a cherry on top, verse 35 to 39, the magistrates have to come back. These are the, this is the premier, has to come back to them and publicly apologize to them for flogging them because they were Roman citizens and he didn't realize. And then finally, uh, the best of all, verse 40, a church is born in Philippi. There's a, now there's a body of believers, a family of believers in, in Philippi. Do you see how the gospel spreads? It's through the J-curve. Friends, this is the map for your life. This is the map for your week. When we can only see a tomb, all God can see is a womb. Friends, do you believe in the resurrection power of Jesus? Can you see it? May God give us faith to believe it, not just to speak the gospel, but to live the gospel. Paul says, I bear in my body the marks, the scars of the Lord Jesus. It's a message to be lived as well as spoken. And so that we've seen how the gospel grows. It's through laborers who speak the gospel, find a field, sow the seed, disciple the new shoots and form them into a body. This is what we're called to. And the gospel grows through laborers who live the gospel, who die with Jesus. And they sing and they pray at the bottom of that J-curve because they cannot wait for the Spirit of God to pour out like he did on the dead body of Jesus in the tomb to raise us up into newness of life. And we live by his power and not by our own strength so that he gets all the glory. Friends, do you need this? 
I'm going to pray, but I want you to think about what is it that you need? What's the tomb? What's the situation? But also, do you need help in speaking the gospel? I want you to think about what that is, to spend a moment. What is it that you need from God? If you need something, I want you to stand. Sometimes we're too private about these things. But we're a family. It's going to be like a bit of a death standing. Like, oh my goodness, they see that I need something. Yeah. Get with the program. That's, That's how it works. We die and we rise. And sometimes we're too indecisive about these things. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Do you need God's help with these things? I invite you to stand if you do. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, when you saw that tomb, you really saw a womb. And you poured out your mighty Holy Spirit to bring the dead to life. We bring our tomb before you. Might be our sin, might be a situation, might be our hearts. Maybe the Lord hasn't even opened your heart to receive and believe the message. Bring it before you. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Pour out your resurrection power. Give us faith. Give us hope. Help us to enter the J-curve. And Lord, it says that they rejoiced because the entire household had become a believer. So would you help us to get a share in that joy of spreading the gospel, knowing that we have a role, but you're the one who opens hearts. Lord, we want to rejoice in the lost being found and the dead being raised, and we want to play our role in it. So please give us what we need. We pray for the people who, don't, who are far from God in our lives. May we be praying for them. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Give us the gifts we need, the opportunities we need. We long to see your kingdom come. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to sing and pray.